Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and I will be your host today. Thanks for tuning in. Please forgive my voice. I have been dealing with a little bit of a cold here recently, but I'm very excited to tell you about our special guest today. His name is Dr. Richard Lanigan, and uh, he is an incredibly brilliant individual. Um, We have a vast discussion about communication, the history of communication studies, communicology, phenomenology, uh, semiotics, and many of the philosophers who are involved in the entirety of that discussion. Let me read you his bio, and then we will get right into the interview. Uh, Richard Lanigan is the Executive Director and Laureate Fellow at the International Communicology Institute in Washington, D.C., and University Distinguished Scholar and Professor of Communicology Emeritus at the Department of Speech Communication for the School of Communication at Southern Illinois University. He's the past president of the Semiotic Society of America, the editor of the American Journal of Semiotics for 10 years, past vice president, International Association of Semiotic Studies, senior Fulbright fellow, fellow of the International Academy for Intercultural Research, fellow of the Polish Academy of Science, in Philology, International Scholar Award in Philosophy of Communication from Duquesne University, uh, elected member of the American Philosophical Association, a founding member of the Philosophy of Communication Division for the National Communication Association and the International Communication Association. Um, and he has written multiple books, multiple um, peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as um, a lot of encyclopedia articles. And so in the podcast, he will explain a little bit why his uh, writing has changed and moved in different directions. But we want to encourage you, if you are looking for the show notes for this, you can go to mindforlife.org forward slash 069. I do need to warn you, the podcast is a very dense and sometimes deep discussion getting into some serious philosophical topics, and it goes on for quite a while. So this was by far one of my longest interviews ever, but super interesting. Great to talk to Dr. Lanigan. I'm so uh, thankful for his time, and I hope that you enjoy the program. What we're talking about today is the idea sure. of communicology um, and some phenomenology and some of the stuff like that that... Uh, I shared some questions with you. So maybe for the audience here, just give us basically, if you would, an entrance into, you know, there's areas that you would say that you've written on phenomenology, uh, semiotic phenomenology, communicology, semiotics, all of those are uh, very specific terms. So maybe you can just give us a grounding and an entrance uh, just so everyone knows what we're talking about as we're coming into uh, this conversation. Sure. I, I think the, the place to start is just with the, 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 the word, the notion of, of communication. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people in my, my formal education, BA through PhD, that 
started off in a speech department that became a speech communication department mm-hmm. that, that then then became a communication department and currently has renamed itself communication studies right uh, at the same time that was happening in the United States then about five or six years ago the University of Hawaii decided that they would become a department of communicology okay they, they did it for a very specific reason they, they wanted communication the study of human communication to be basically quantitative statistically based research and so mm-hmm. they decided communicology would be it and uh, they, they posted an article saying so on wikipedia uh, at the same time in europe starting in the ni- 1980s there was already a, a, a growing belief that semiotics, the, the, which is the study of sign systems, that, that was known as semiology. Uh, it was made scientific by the Americans who, who did not like the word semiology because it meant communication. Mm-hmm. So they use the word semiotics to give it a scientific flavor, right? Okay. Like economics, semiotics. Right. Yep. Uh, and, and and so that that tended to to dominate in in Europe as well, and became so semiotics became synonymous with communication. Well, the the problem was that European universities were were modernizing. And their their study in European universities, the study of communication, what was was the old fashioned term called philology. Mm-hmm. Uh, philology is the study of culture and language, communication, right? Much as as we understand it. So philology was quickly going out of vogue as a term because nobody knew what that technically meant. So there were a lot of um, conversions of philology departments to semiotics departments. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the strange things that happens was that in, in, in the Soviet Union, as it was transitioning in, into becoming Russia, the universities decided that communication was a fundamental basic course, just like we teach English uh, at our universities. And so semiotics became a required undergraduate course in, in the universities of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That had an enormous impact on Eastern Europe. And uh, the perception of Eastern European countries, uh, particular places like Romania and Poland, thought that it was, was too narrow. And so they decided, they came up with the, the term communicology. Now, where did they get that? They did a little research about the United States. Right. And they, they found out that back, back in the beginning of the 1960s and 70s, there, there was a big intellectual academic debate in this country when speech departments that taught what was called general speech public speaking, rhetoric, and speech pathology and audiology decided to have the humanities science split. Mm-hmm. That the people in speech pathology and audiology wanted to be a therapy department, mm-hmm. just like psychology would split from philosophy, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there, there was a great debate 
with within the, the speech communication discipline about how the divide should take place. And there were people in the speech pathology and audiology section that said, this is a mistake to keep subdividing. Right. And they, they pointed to the fact that in the United States, we, when we go back to the early universities like Harvard, there, there were departments of rhetoric, which covered communication. They soon became split between speaking and writing. And so departments of English were born. Long story short, there were now departments of speech, public speaking, oral communication, and departments of writing. Right. But then it got kind of confused, like the philology thing, because the, the writing people were saying, well, that's just a skill. We have to study literature and writing. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So... We, we move forward uh, up, up into the 1970s and departments of English, which also contained linguistics, the linguistics people wanted to divide. Right. Okay. So, so this history of what happened in English departments, all this splitting, getting mm -hmm. narrower and narrower and narrower, that was forefront in the great debate between speech pathology and rhetoric people in speech communication departments. So Fra Franklin Knowles was famous for writing an article about he proposed communicology for everybody. Mm -hmm. Communicology would, would be the science of communication with whatever subdivisions you wanted, which could be everything from film studies to speech pathology and audiology. Mm -hmm. He didn't win. He lost. It was rejected. <laughs> However, back to Europe now. The Europeans are looking at the history of all of this. They said, that, that's it. That's it. Communicology. Why communicology? Well, because Europe is just coming off of 150 years of a debate about a, a, a discipline called sociology. Right. Oh, sociology was the outrage of its time. Why? Well, because up until that point in European history, all academic disciplines had been defined by Greek terms. Mm-hmm. And sociology, socius, logos. Oh, soci that's Latin, not Greek. Right. You can't do that. Only Greek terms, none of this Latin stuff. <laughs> so it was out, it was an outrageous controversy for a hundred years. Yeah. Finally accepted. So communicality. Uh-oh. Again, Latin communists. Logos, another Latin Greek Latin term, Greek another heresy. Yeah. However, for the Europeans, we, we we found out that original heresy was nonsense. Forget it. We're yeah, going to go with communicality. It was accepted. Because all, all true sciences, science is any systematic study. So the Europeans believe that universities are science operations. Mm -hmm. Even literature is a science systematic study is science so mm -hmm. universities do science so communicality single term for the study of communication we reach a saturation point so back at, in 2000 i held a conference at uh, southern illinois university and said you know now's the time to reintroduce Knowles terms Right. We've, we've been through this whole analysis in America and Europe. Time for a one-term science term for the discipline. However, 
back to the University of Hawaii now. They said, oh, no, it's got to be quantitative. So uh, along comes my group, says, well, no, it can be quantitative. That's true. But let's keep the qualitative in there. So we, we, we took the, the, the philosophic position. Okay. Which is to say, if you're going to look at the essence of the study of communication, what is the absolute thing you need? Human beings. Human beings are the point of view in all of this. Mm -hmm. So communication's got to be a human science. And what is this study? It, it studies how human beings communicate. And the, the general name for that is discourse. So definition, communicology is the human science of discourse. Okay. Quite simple, a one-liner. However, unlike limiting it to a quantitative method, we say communicology is the human science of discourse using the methodology of logic. Mm -hmm. Because logic governs all disciplines. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what, what they are, fine arts, music, physics. Mm -hmm. Human beings involved have a discourse, a systematic discourse, and they have a method, and it might be mathematics, but logic and mathematics in its pure form, going back to the Greeks, is one system. Mm -hmm. There's no difference between math and logic. Right. And so we, we, we use the principles of, of, of logic, and then this, this makes a direct connection then uh, in, into things like phenomenology and semiotics, because what you do is when you when you study the history of philosophy, you 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 can look at any major philosopher, and you 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 just have to ask two questions: what is their their theory of logic, and how do they tie that theory of logic to language? Mm -hmm. Right away, you 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 have their definition of what communication is. Right. And so that that's pretty much uh, what's involved. So that then leaves the question of communicology favoring the method of semiotic phenomenology. So two parts. Right. Semiotics is a is 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 the logic of any kind of system, any kind of pattern. Right. Communication people are fond of saying we, we study patterns. Okay. Patterns of interaction, patterns of language, patterns of vision, so on. So semiotics is that the relationships, uh, the, 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 the word that semioticians like to use is structure, but that uh -huh. just means relationship. Right. Relationship. Or if, if you really want to talk things like communication theory, the, the word that for structure and relation is code. Right. So, so semiotics is a study of codes. Code. How, how does anything get coded? On the other hand, the phenomenology then is that phenomena means things. Phenomena plus logos, the logic of things. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you perceive things? How do you know about anything? Right. So the, the phenomenologists are, are, are famous for, for critiquing positive science by saying, you can't pretend there's no observer. Mm -hmm. You can't say there are things like pure sensation or pure perception. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to be doing it. Right. And if somebody's doing it, you have to account for how they're doing it. Right. So, so phenomenology always says, look, 
start with the human point of view. So almost invariably, that then has a very simple practical problem. It's perception. Mm -hmm. If you're going to study anything, the first question you ask yourself is, how, how am I perceiving it? The next question is, how do you express it? Mm -hmm. I perceive something and I want to translate that into to language or film or image or imagination. What, what, what's the form of expression? Mm -hmm. So usually in my, 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 my research, the, 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 the simple comparison that I draw, particularly for students, is that we, we forget that we're the perceiving human being. And because we do that, what we do is we, we encounter the world uh, we, we encounter expressions. Everything is expressing to us. The natural world is a visual kind of expression to us. Other people talk to us, so on. And we, we forget that that's very familiar to us. And, the, and so one of the questions becomes, why do we forget that? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because we're adults. We forget that we were born into the world and we had to learn all of this. Right. We, we, we were perceiving all the time. We were perceiving mom's, the sound of mom's voice, dad's voice. We were learning to discriminate sounds. And not, not only that, we were being introduced to the agony of education. <laughs> because when one of the first agonies the family gave us was baby talk. Right. Here we are trying to figure out what language these people are talking. Yeah. We're trying to perceive their language. And they're, they're screwing around with all the phonology, right. messing it up, elongating it. And we're, we're, it takes a long time to sort through all of that. Right. So one of my recommendations to my students is that uh, when you get married and have kids, please just talk to them like normal people. Just talk to no, them. No, normal. no baby talk. Right. Make it easy on your kids. Make it easy on the kids, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would have told me that 15, 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> Well, and then the, the, the same thing comes in. I do a lot of cross-cultural consulting. So the, the other thing I say is that uh, if there are two languages in, in the family, stay stay with one language for one event. Right. You know, so in, in my family, my, my wife is Chinese. Uh-huh. Um, my, my primary second, second language is uh, French, and then Spanish, Little German. But but I was also raised in New Mexico, so uh, I, I I have a functional ability in in the Dine language, the language of Navajo Indians. Oh my goodness! So now th there's a, there's a reason for my background because because I learned a little Dine. It's a tonal language, just like Chinese. Uh huh. So I ended up marrying a Chinese woman because her manner of speaking is very familiar to my ear. Okay. I can understand her emotions much better than I can just a standard American. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you Are you uh, able to speak Chinese then? Have you learned that, I'm sure, a little bit? or? Uh, no, but well, that, that, that's it. My, my perception is quite good. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my expression is highly limited because right. I... I, I'm not used to, uh, it's like Dine, I haven't spoken Dine in 20 years. Right. That there's no call for it. But the problem is that to tonal languages, your your meaning shifts by your tone of voice. Mm -hmm. it, uh, to this, this is a totally unfamiliar concept to, to most Westerners. Right. 
the, 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 the closest analogy I've ever come up with is the, uh, the, the analogy with forms of sentences. Mm -hmm. we, we use tone to distinguish between a statement and like a question. Right. I'm making a statement. I'm making a statement. Oh, yeah, we can tell the difference between those two. Right, the right. Tone shift. Yeah. So the, we, we pick out sentence types mm -hmm. by tone. But in tonal languages, the people pick out words by tone. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're making a much more refined selection mm -hmm. than, than we would. So generally, I, when, when, I, when I'm in, in, a, in a group of Chinese, I can perceive when I'm being talked about and how I'm being talked about, although I can't respond. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so communicology, just refreshing me because I'm just coming into it, is sure. a science, a, a human science for the study of discourse, a human science of the study of discourse, which is the interaction between people. Correct? Is right. that fair? Right. Oh, sure, sure. From a, from, from a phenomenological method. In other words, you come into it, not from that positive science where there's something, you're always coming to it from the understanding that there is a perspective that somebody's taking on whatever the expression may be. Oh, exactly. Which right. is... You see, I, I, th I think this makes it incredibly practical and, and, and commonsensical because when we, when we talk with somebody else, we're totally focused on the, 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 the perspective that I have of the other person. Right. I'm looking at them as, as a, a human being who has all, all kinds of characteristics, and I know they are too. too. And so when, when we, or if we're going to describe our conversation, our dialogue, we have to account for those kinds of perspectives. And so I, I, I use a, a number of, of simple comparisons, uh, which I'll do in just a minute, but the, the principle involved here is, is the old Greek concept of analogy. Uh, when, when Aristotle talked about rhetoric, he said it's nothing but a game of analogies. Mm -hmm. uh, I make an analogy to, when I when I hear you talking, I make an analogy between what you're saying and what I would have said. Right. When I listen, I'm making an analogy to the way I would listen. Right. And I assume by analogy you listen the same way I do. Of I course, hope. that's the that's the beginning of the problem, right? Right. It's only an analogy. It's not right. a match. Right. And so we, we get a lot of things wrong. We we have to work at it. Okay. So the 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 one of the the simple examples to do this is. Positive science models of communication, sender, receiver, transmission, that sort of stuff. These are these all toss away the notion of analogy. They toss away the notion of context. So when we talk about things like a communication code, the first thing that we forget is that that's just a, a gross general abstraction. That there is no thing called the code. What there is is a a, a interpersonal relationship, a process of coding. It's always, the, I always say this is the the, uh, the ING rule. If, if you want to 
really describe anything. Always put ing on on your main verbs and nouns, and you'll get the the flavor of process. Right. So so if there's no thing called the code, what is there? Well, there's what we we'll stay with the language. There's encoding when you do it. Mm -hmm. There's decoding when I when I receive it. So encoding is is a speaker phenomena. Decoding is a listener phenomena. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the thing is about that analogy is that we, we know something that's very commonsensical, predictable about this, namely that they're opposites. That wh whatever is this encoding, it's the decoding is the mirror reversal, the right. mirror opposite of it. So if, if, you, if, we, if we talk in just, you know, plain English, as Charles first liked to talk about it, what, what, what is encoding? Encoding is simply intelligibility. Mm -hmm. When I talk, I want to make myself intelligible. So I, so I, I try to pick out the words and sentences. I, I try to have the emotion that, that, that goes with that. So I, I'm working on making things intelligible to the other person. Mm -hmm. or, or now, so we, we flip that over in the mirror and what, what's the listener doing? Well, the listener, yeah, ha ha has to work on intelligibility, and so that's a matchup of language. Uh, I listen to you. I said, oh, yeah, you're speaking English. Uh, yeah, I, I recognize you're, you're nonverbal and so on, so n n no problem there. So what am I doing as a listener? Oh, well, I'm doing that analogy to myself again. So my first question is, why is this relevant? Right. So, speaker point of view, let's make it intelligible. Mm -hmm. Listener point of view, let's make it relevant. Mm -hmm. So it's matching. And intelligibility and relevance are generally opposite. Right. You see, the, 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 more, the more I demand relevance, the less intelligible you become. <laughs> you're, you're, just, you're just not, you're not me talking. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> It's I, one of the things that I've found, and maybe you can comment on it, is the more you or the more I study or learn about communication and language and abstraction, the more uh, the more ch the more challenging the question is, how in the world is it the fact that we actually communicate with other people and can understand what's going on? It's just seemingly like miraculous to me that these abstract words and and maybe that's where semiotics come into it with sign and signifier and all that stuff that we're able to like, how are we able to really understand what people are saying? How are we able to get meaning out of that? Um, and how does that whole process work maybe from a communicology perspective? Yeah, well, it's it's yeah. We on the surface, it would appear to be a, a minor miracle that we communicate at all, right? Given all, all all of the differences that are involved, but again, that's this is where philosophy comes into the picture. The you 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 kind of have to go go back to the the fundamentals of the Greeks because the the, the the Greeks really got everything right, particularly Aristotle. That, mm -hmm. uh, Aristotle 
wrote a little essay that is kind of like an introduction to his logic treatises, but it is called um, Hermeneuticos, the, the, and it's on, on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is interpretation. So Aristotle is saying, look, but before I talk about logic, the, mm -hmm. all the technicalities of, of how analogy works, before mm -hmm. I talk about that, let, let's let's deal with the whole, the human point of view, which is interpretation. We're, we're, we're going to interpret things. Mm -hmm. And so how, how does interpretation work? And he had a, he has a one-liner. It opens the essay. He says, "Thinking leads to speaking. Speaking leads to writing. Mm -hmm. It happens that way." Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Well, that that's great. Except that's only an account of encoding. That, that that's Aristotle, the adult, saying, "Yeah, I think about things. Mm -hmm. I say it, and then I write it down." Mm -hmm. But what, what did little Aristotle do when he was learning to speak Greek? Well, he was he was he encountered the mirror. Mm -hmm. He encountered writing first. He he encountered his parents who were inscribing. They were they were talking a language. Mm -hmm. He had to listen to that. He took those inscriptions, those signs. He had to turn them into signifiers. He had to express them. So little Aristotle played around with the sounds until he got all the vowels and consonants down. And then it's the what, what, what most Westerners call the age of reason, the moment of reason. About age seven, this happens. Suddenly we discover thinking. Mm -hmm. And what, what is that? Ah, th this is the, the, the grand code, if you like, the grand matrix of, of logic, which is little Aristotle discovered that not only could he differentiate between the parents talking to him and him talking to the parents, little Aristotle discovered he could tell the difference between inside him thinking quietly, no sounds, mm -hmm. and the outside of him speaking, making sounds. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the grand analogy. What's happening inside, outside me is happening inside, outside mom and dad. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, we, we share that matrix. Mm -hmm. And so the, this is this is often called quadrature, quadratics four, and uh, it's 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 the the system of analogy that that Aristotle invented for logic, and that that pattern, and Aristotle just systematized it. It goes back much further to people like uh, Pythagoras and Parmenides, the ancient Greeks that we don't know much about. And so the, the, the idea is that there, there are four of everything, and these become the famous four causes of Aristotle. But right. you'll, you'll find them. They, they're the four basic categories. Philosophers talk about categories. Mm -hmm. that, that, too, is misleading because a category, again, is just a relationship, mm -hmm. a rule. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the great proof of this is that you, you, you can ask, any apparently educated person what a rule is and they can't tell you right because the rule is quadrature rules are whatever relationship we pick out of the four possibilities mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we talk about rules all the time but we don't know what they are they're, they're just accepted analogies that we like to use mm -hmm. well explain the four those four possibilities that you just mentioned 
Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to do that because it, it gets into terminal metaphysical terminology and um, there, there, there are nice accounts of it and anybody can look, look up Aristotle's four causes on Wikipedia. Okay. And you'll, you'll get nice charts and easy, but the, the, the main thing to keep in mind is the, 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 the four causes are Aristotle's version uh, of what Pythagoras called common notions. And what are some of the common notions? Uh, Pythagoras says, look, yeah, um, human experience is, is differentiation. How, how, how do you decide how something is the same or different? Right. And um, the so there's, I'm, I'm giving you the four causes in a different form. Okay. So you, you, you try to differentiate things. And uh, the, the first thing that you, you uh, differentiate is that uh, this, is, this is natural science. This is your, your typical scientist. Mm -hmm. The first thing you differentiate, you look, you look into the world of nature and you say, you know, some of the things are the same and some things are different. Mm -hmm. I, I, I see a chicken. Oh, well, I'm different from the chicken. On the other hand, we're the same. Uh, we're both living organisms. We both eat and die. Oh, well, a whole bunch of similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. But I put all that together. There's an analogy there of mm -hmm. the same and different. Uh, but that's that, that gives me a rule for what's an animal and what's human. Right. It, but, it, but it's synergistic. It gives me a whole bunch of secondary rules like, what's alive and what's dead, mm -hmm. what has feathers, what doesn't, so on. So same same and different. And then that, that's the adult speaking. Well, I'm, I'm busy making same and different comparisons. Where did that come from? Oh, it, it came from a different earlier analogy, a, a different earlier differentiation. That was between self and other, mm -hmm. me and you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, me and mom. That was the right. first differentiation. And then and once I discovered me and mom, I discovered inside me and outside me. Right. That's the quadrature. Self, other, same, different. Those four elements are the basis of every rule, every analogy, and we call that being human. Mm -hmm. And why, why is that important? Because a machine can't do it. Right. There's no logic on earth that, that can make that logic work. Because... We, we have a very special thinking ability, that, which is that, that rule-making ability in the first place. And it's, it's all based on, on self, the self-awareness I have. Self-awareness because of awareness of the other. Self-awareness because I'm the same and, and different than other people. And that whole, that whole ability to differentiate means that the thing that I'm doing that a computer can simulate but not originate is that I have memory. Mm -hmm. I, I have consciousness, not, 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 I have a mind, not mm -hmm. just a brain, mm -hmm. but the operation of that brain, the consciousness, the, the process of, that that brain functions with. So what, what does my memory do? something very important, which uh, is going to be now the basis between the differentiation 
between information and communication. So mm -hmm. what, what's my brain doing? My brain, my memory is recording all the decisions that I make. Mm -hmm. Okay, most people would call this their their good memories. What are your what are your good memories? Well, they're most of your memories. Right. You keep the good ones and you get rid of the bad ones. Mm -hmm. You try to anyway. That's Freud's repression. That's how you, you try to get rid of them, but they're not gone. But but it's the good ones. So when when you come home for Thanksgiving dinner and meet the family, you've got all your good memories and they've got all their good memories, but they don't match. Mm -hmm. Their good memories are generally at your expense. They re they remember things you got wrong. They were right. funny. Right. You remember them as tragedies. Mm -hmm. You tried to forget them. That's why Thanksgiving is, is uh, such a contentious period for most families because all of a sudden the history of memory comes into dialogue where it's usually silence. And we're mm -hmm. much better off in that moment with the silence. <laughs> okay, so we we have the good memories, but we have the bad memories. Well, that, that tells you something about human memory versus machine memory. Human memory remembers the, the, the decision made I remember all the decisions I've made, and that's the important part. And then I remember the evaluation I made. Mm -hmm. I remember whether they were good or bad. I've got two categories. Okay, now why, why is that important? Because th this is a special kind of human logic. It's combinatory. It's both and. Mm -hmm. we, we always make the analogy between things. We combine in order to then differentiate. So this this means this is usually just shorthanded as a both end logic, this, this this combining power. The memories that are bad that I don't want to remember, I, I, I'm excluding, but they're still there. Right. And what why do human beings keep them? Why why don't we have them lurking there. Well, it's because we might need them in the future. Right. We realize that any decision we make is contextual. It's bound to that situation. So if the situation changes, my judgment have to change might change. Okay, well, human beings discovered this a long time ago. This is very important. And so we institutionalize it. We call it education. Mm -hmm. We teach our kids what all the, all the good choices are, right. knowing that they'll make some good choices and some bad choices, and they'll remember both of them. Right, and that's important because we're 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 exposed to we're confront, confronted with other people's decisions. Some are the same; they're good. Some are not the same; they're bad. So we we we, we experience all this. That's what socialization is. So when, when we look at this philosophically, what does that mean? It, it means that we've developed a very sophisticated logic, which is combining and dividing and doing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's why I can make a choice, yet change my mind. Mm -hmm. I can do exactly the opposite and be happy with it. Mm -hmm. And you can be happy with my decision because you would say, if you were a parent, oh, look, kid, you learned something. Right. You learned that what a mistake is. Mm -hmm. You learned what an error is. And so this, you know, has, has enormous ra ramifications for, for 
public policy, but especially in education. Kids have to be in situations where they both learn to succeed and fail. Mm -hmm. if, if there's no failure, there's no learning. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole idea that is, you know, it, it's so sometimes critiqued these days as, as meritocracy, a bad thing. No, merit judgments are very important mm -hmm. because you have, you have to, You've got to be Greek. You 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 already know you're in the evaluation business. Mm -hmm. You must know how you're evaluating, and you must you must have an analog scale that is mostly good, mostly bad. But you also have to have the ability to switch those around when you need to. Mm -hmm. And then you 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 get you get into the collective business of uh, what should most people be doing, and that's that's where the Greeks were. Very, very fond of rhetoric and the court system and laws because they said some sometimes people just can't figure this out on their own and they have to have help and that that's what the the, the Greeks invented the judicial system law courts for that which was mm -hmm. the place where rhetoric was born mm -hmm. and so so judgments ha have to be made and so this is where we get our our Western value of First of all, where we started, everything I've said so far was a, was a great explication of what common sense is. Right. We commonly hold that things are sensible this way. Mm -hmm. Now we, we take it up to the next level of evaluation by saying common sense must be in the context of the common good. Right. And so this is what the Greeks believe, that the common good is achieved by good people Good people are produced by systems where they are exposed to getting it right and getting it wrong mm -hmm. and taught that they can change their mind. Right. No um, machine can do that. Yeah. No so, animal can do that. And I think that's an, a very interesting thing to explore because there are the technophiles out there, the artificial intelligence defenders that believe that someday computers are going to think better than human beings. I do believe also, I, I read much of Richard Dreyfus and listened to him, uh, specifically his commentaries on uh, Heidegger's being in time and the, phenomenal, uh, the phenomenological perspective on computers and, and theory of mind and thinking and everything like that. I'm assuming that you're going to say, there's never going to be ever any chance that a computer will be able to replicate a human in actuality. It may be able to simulate certain thoughts and things like that, and maybe fool somebody in that Turing test into believing it's a human, but you don't believe that they are the same qualitatively when it comes to those thoughts, no matter what type of neural networks or artificial neural networks that, you know, computer scientists or something like that can come up with. Is that fair? Um, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I would agree with that because there's. I, I have a much simpler way of going about it right. than, than having to invoke uh, philosophic metaphysics. Right. You, if, if you, if 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 you if you if we take the point of view of common sense, okay, uh, computers they, they 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 get better every year. The, the software gets better every year. But but the, the fundamental question you've got to ask yourself now is, where did the computer come from? Mm -hmm. A human being built it. 
Mm -hmm. So that, that's just number one, the origin problem. It's, mm -hmm. it's always built by a human being. Well, then the counter argument usually is, well, when the machines get sophisticated, they'll replicate themselves. That's true. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you can have a, a robot build a better car than a human being can build a better car. Mm -hmm. But there's the secondary question. Machines are notorious for wearing out. Mm -hmm. they, do, they do have time spans, just, just like human beings. Mm -hmm. Anybody who owns a computer knows that. Right. It's called emptying the garbage. Mm -hmm. Because what, what are computers? Computers are mechanical simulations of memory. Mm -hmm. Choices I made and choices I didn't. Mm -hmm. But those are all in the computer memory. Mm -hmm. And the choices I didn't make are the garbage that has to be emptied in order right. to save space in the memory. Right. Now, the one solution to that is to expand the memory. Mm -hmm. Oh, the cloud. Common sense, where's the cloud? Well, it's taking more and more and more acres mm -hmm. of circuit farms mm -hmm. to hold the memory. Because no, no, nobody wants to lose any data. Right. Not, not even the stuff that's not saved for any particular purpose. Right. So yeah, everything was ever on any computer is there someplace. It's there. But my God, is that a storage problem? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there are two ways to go with that. More memory farms. That's one. We're building them. Right. Or increase the capacity of the chip. Make it smaller and more data. And right. we're doing that too. So the 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 very latest uh, computers are the attempt to to build chips that do what they describe as something really amazing, a chip that will remember yes and no and yes and no together. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's where we started with the human being. Right. They were together, and then we divided them. So mm -hmm. mach machines are at the level, you know, uh, uh, of, of a simple organism. They they machine machines have same and different. Mm -hmm. They want to try and find an analogy for self and other. Right. That matches same and different, and they will be able to do that. But it's not going to be self and other. Right. It's going to be same and different, and oh. Same, same, and different, different. It's right. always going to be binary. Yeah. And it's always going to be a good choice. And there's always going to be the garbage, no choice in memory. <laughs> Empty the garbage. So, mm -hmm. so common sense, what does that mean? It means human beings have to build the machines, but human beings have to maintain the machines. Mm -hmm. They can't repair themselves. There's no computer in the world that can get that can go on functioning without you emptying the garbage. Right. There's no mechanism that will allow the computer to self-empty its garbage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we we empty that out just part of our natural thinking process it, we, we, without even thinking that it's part of the process. Right. It just automatically happens. Those things disappear that we say no on or we think are not important or whatever. But however, there's still remnants of it that are left there to a certain extent fair and, and they still yes and they still cause problems that's what a quote bug is right let, let, let me give you the the human version of that 
you and your partner, wife, partner, whatever, you have an argument. Right. You 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 say things that are on your mind, not filtered. They hurt. Yep. They hurt just as much as the good stuff you used to say that felt really good. Right. They hurt. They hurt so much that you 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 get into a, a Rousseau social contract. You both agree never to say it again. Right. Yeah, yeah. You smile as you say yeah, that because I know you know you know that agreement is quite facile. Right. It's, <laughs> so time goes by, another incident happens, and spontaneously, this is why Freud had such a good business. Spontaneously, you say the thing that's never to be said again. Mm -hmm. You've changed your mind and you've pulled it out of memory. Mm -hmm. The bad that was assigned to the good never to be said again box is now out of the good box back into the bad box. Right. And then you you've got the now you've got problems <laughs> in the practical. Exactly. So so what, what what is it? But what's the the analogy? Just to be sure, we we, we said that all, all the stuff that was in garbage was deleted. Right. It was, except the machine still had to save one little thing. Right. The rule to empty the garbage. Right. That's still that's still in the algorithm code. Yeah. And because it's there, it can be recovered. Uh huh. And the FBI and the CIA are very good at recovering it. Right. Just like we're very good at picking that one word out and saying it again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> super super interesting. Um, can you take us a little bit into the different schools you, you talk in one of you, I've, I've read your article, uh, encyclopedia article on phenomenology, I believe. And can you take us through maybe the history of the different schools, the differentiations between those schools, be it entrances or methodologies or whatever, and into kind of semiotic phenomenology, which is kind of uh, one of your areas of expertise, I would say you've written on quite a bit and give an understanding of how that works and why that's important in communicology. Okay. Well, let, let's, um, I, I think that the interesting approach for that is to uh, just, just deal a little bit with the history of phenomenology. Sure. Um, Basically, phenomenology is a, a term that kind of comes out of uh, Immanuel Kant's work, which we, we don't need to, to worry too much about. Uh, basically, he, he, Kantian philosophy is, is about focusing on, on, on human reasoning. Mm -hmm. uh, Kant was very much interested in the mind and consciousness and basically how, how, how people make judgments. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that, that's really where the, the term comes from. However, the, 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 the actual kind of uh, application of that thinking starts with, uh, uh, it, it, it originates again out of, out of the German philosophy, but it originates with a, a, a Franz Brentano uh, Brentano was one of the early people who was focused on what we call psychology. Mm -hmm. So there, there has been a, a, a traditional interdisciplinary fight 
in the academic world between philosophy and psychology mm -hmm. are they the same the different and uh, everybody goes to great pains to differentiate them right <laughs> the, the the problem being as we were ever already understood is that the two things that are being studied are already together and so the attempt to divide them is based on the fact that they do have lots of compatibilities right but 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 the the simple version is psychology is, is concerned with the thinking part, the mind, consciousness. How, how are you, your consciousness of things? So Brentano was a, a, an early proponent of psychology. Now, Brentano's work is not particularly spectacular. He was just asking a lot of questions. But, but he is famous because he had, at the same time, two very famous students. One, Sigmund Freud, mm -hmm. right? Freud was really interested in how does the mind work from the point of view of how does the mind know itself? Mm -hmm. It's the problem of self-awareness, but not, not, not the self-awareness of a whole human being. How, how does my mind know my body? Now, Freud wanted to go inside and say, well, what, what, what's consciousness? Where does it come from? Right. How does the mind know itself? So that, that's the whole Freudian school of, of psychology, which ultimately becomes what we call psychiatry. Mm -hmm. The other student was Edmund Husserl. Same problem, uh, consciousness, but Husserl was more the scientist. He said, how are we conscious of things? Mm -hmm. we, we'll assume the mind is consciousness and, and it knows itself. How does it know things? Mm -hmm. So that that... Those those two people represent the, the great divide, but still within the context of what is consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's Husserl that becomes important to us on the human science end, because that's that's more the philosophical side. It's the metaphysical side. It's it's the concern with people and things. Mm -hmm. uh, so so Husserl develops. His phenomenological method, which is nothing spectacular. He's just reinventing Aristotle. Uh, Husserl takes, says, look, the mind goes, goes through an analogy process of thinking, speaking, and writing. Mm -hmm. Things in the world are like writing. They're mm -hmm. inscriptions. They're, they're products. They're, they're end products. Mm -hmm. So Husserl's concern with, with phenomenology was backtracking from things into speaking so the others are concerned with language but mm -hmm. but language is still a symbolic system so what's what's behind the symbolic system well it's thought so the Husserl question becomes how, how does the mind make objects for itself it's then when we know this as subject and object right um so there's a subjective and an objective and his, his whole exploration was in those terms Okay, so what, what happens then in the history is that you, you basically get two schools, the German school and the French school. Mm -hmm. the, the German school stay, stays with, with Husserl, and ultimately we, we get Heidegger, where the, the whole concern is um, how, how does consciousness know itself? In the French school, we, we, we have the, the, the intrusion of the life sciences, psychology, uh, sociology, uh, especially anthropology. Mm 
So the, the focal person becomes Meloponte. Meloponte says, yeah, consciousness is a problem, uh, but what, what is the, the main object that consciousness has? Well, it's, it's our own body. Mm-hmm. Our, our consciousness, we, the, the, and this is where you get people like Piaget, for example, where you, you explore how, how does the child's consciousness get embodied or become physical behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, just footnote here, Piaget was the person who succeeded Meloponti at the Sorbonne, the chair of child psychology. So mm-hmm. Piaget continues on what Meloponti began. Mm-hmm. So Meloponti is the philosopher, and his, his famous book, Phenomenology of Perception, is, is all about the domain of perception. And his, his argument is, is quite simple. It's, it's just like my argument that you've got to have a human being to build a computer and to maintain a computer. Meloponti says, look, you got to have a body to have consciousness. Right. You're just not going to have a thing called mind and its function without a body. Mm-hmm. And, and the only body that accounts for that is a human body. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's the, the combination of body and consciousness. And so in, 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 in Husserl and, and philosophy generally, phenomenology generally, the, this is called apperception. Except that if you look up apperception in a dictionary, it'll tell you it's self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we talked about. That That's the child discovering that he or she is different from the parent. That's right. self-awareness. Mm-hmm. I have a self and there's the other out there. But Meloponti is, is concerned with the next level we went to, which is is self, self-awareness, but as embodied. Right. How, how 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 am I aware of the fact that I have awareness? Right. So one of the hallmarks of, of Meloponti and French phenomenology is his slogan that all phenomenology is a phenomenology of phenomenology. Uh-huh. Whatever dom- domain of awareness you're talking about, the context for that is the self and awareness, and those two are in analogy to each other. Okay. Now that that makes sense to us because we've already talked about that in in terms of memory. One consciousness is the stuff I remember. One consciousness is the stuff that I don't remember, but they're both there. Mm-hmm. This is where uh, things like Freud becomes the, the Freudian description of problems becomes important to Meloponti. And also to somebody like Foucault, it's how are these things remembered? Mm-hmm. And so, so, so Matt Meloponti's version of phenomenology takes it full blown out of philosophy and into philosophy and science. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, traditionally, within the United States and now generally internationally, we simply call this the philosophy of communication. Mm-hmm. Because the 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 Meloponte, the Husserl Meloponti version of all the philosophy is, it's a philosophy that accounts for human communication as primary, as the the paradigm, the the thing that everything else is modeled on. Mm-hmm. So animal behavior, machine behavior, all modeled on. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the interesting things I always used to point out to my undergraduate students is. I used to send them over to the library to look up communication in the Encyclopedia of Science and Technology. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I don't know whether, I haven't looked at it in years, but it, it, the opening line of the entry used to be, communication is an analogy to human conversation. Mm -hmm. And then they went on to talk about the machines. <laughs> <laughs> so they, while Merleau-Ponty is, is doing all of his philosophical work on consciousness, there, there is um, a political event that's, that's, that's very important to, in the development of ideas. The 1960s, called the, 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 the student riot, the student rebellion of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the, the uh, rebellion by the students at the Sorbonne. And it was a, that riot took place Politically, at the same time, there was a very famous Congress, of the, 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 the European Congress on Psychology. Mm -hmm. And the qualitative psychologists, largely the people, the, the Freudians and so on, the Lacanians, all of the people who believed in the therapy, were revolting against the demand for st only statistical studies of psychology, experimental studies, mm -hmm. so that the Congress broke down. They, 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 they were arguing and they stopped talking to each other. In the middle of the Congress, the riots take place. There's a, a general French social upheaval about and really just a great, great debate be be between quantitative science and qualitative science. And so the academic version of this shows up in Bella Ponti as, as the confrontation of semiotics and phenomenology. Mm -hmm. At that time, semiology and phenomenology. And uh, it, it, it was the, the, the claim of, the, of some of the semioticians, not, in, not entirely an accurate claim, but the claim was that language was a pure symbolic form, just like nature. Right. That human languages was a, a phonological system that had nothing to do with human beings. It was simply absorbed by human beings. Well, Meloponti basically is famous for critiquing that and showing that it just wasn't possible. Um, now, uh, uh, about, about the same time as, as that's going on with Meloponti in, in France, there's this Russian linguist, Roman Jakobson, who, for, for, because he's a, he's, a, he's a Russian Jew, he's forced out of Russia, and he, he takes up residence at the University of Prague. Mm -hmm. And he then is heavily influenced by, by Husserl's logic, and so Ro Roman Jakobson then becomes a kind of phenomenological linguist. And then the next important, I'm just sort of hopscotching sure. through history. Yeah. The next important contact is then that uh, the, the Nazis come come to power in Germany, and uh, all all of the Jewish scholars emigrate. So Jakobson emigrates to New York. Levi Strauss emigrates out of out of Paris. Jakobson and Levi Strauss meet each other. So you have Jakobson, the linguist, phenomenologically trained. Le Levi Strauss, the anthropologist, phenomenologically trained. Right. I intimate dialogue partner with Meloponti in Paris. Uh -huh. 
Levi Strauss, uh, Jakobsen, spend three years together at the New School for Social Research in New York. And, and the whole phenomenological model of human science uh, evolves. And, and, and so the, 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 the basic methodological logic there of, of combining the, the, stu the study of, of human sign systems, basically phonology and human behavior anthropology, which are all the template of what Meloponti has done it theoretically. So mm -hmm. what we have in Levi-Strauss and Jakobsen are the applied research. Okay. Levi-Strauss takes it into the study of anthropology and the, and, and the, and the description of cultures. Mm -hmm. Jakobsen takes it into language and he, he works from the, he works on the cultural evolution from poetry into prose. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the two of them come together because this is this is nothing but now classical Greek thought. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the phonology of Jakobson, the uh, poetry and prose is, is exactly what, what, what the Greeks called mythos, study of myth, mm -hmm. mythos and logos, poetry and prose. Mm -hmm. Navi Strauss, on the other hand, uh, doing culture and folktales, folklore, and so on. And that's exactly what, what, what the Greeks called magikos. Mm -hmm. Magic in Greek means to practice. What are the cultural practices? Mm -hmm. So, so you, 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 you have uh, magikos. Let's see, I've got, I've got mythos and logos, magikos. I'm missing one. I can't think of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, um, it'll come to me in a minute. But anyway, it, it's just the applied. So it's just the practice. So you 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 have the, the two of them then a scientific presentation because on the on the one hand you have the science of phonology, which is the science of sound, mm -hmm. and, and the qualitative model that makes sense for it. And you, you have the cultural model of practice with Levi-Strauss, and that makes sense. And the, the, the two of them then become a proof. This is almost, you know, like, like the, the empirical proof for, for um, Einstein's theories. Mm -hmm. At this point, we have the empirical proof for another person who predicted all of this on theoretical grounds, but, and that was Ernst Cassirer. Mm -hmm. who writes the philosophy of symbolic forms, mm -hmm. which is a phenomenological method. Kassira uh, predicts that hu human culture is, a, we're back to our quadrature now, the differentiation of human culture, self, other, same, different, now has names. It's language, art, myth, and religion. Mm-hmm. Language, art, myth, and religion, the quadratic of Aristotle, now is both theoretic. Kassira goes to great lengths to, to go through the history of human symbolic systems, finds mm -hmm. the theory. And then we have the, these two uh, Latter-day scientists, Levi-Strauss and, and Jakobsen, who now provide the empirical examples that Kassira was correct. Mm -hmm. You see, Smart. so we, we have a human science model that we, we can lay out in a chart 
-huh. moving from eidetic theoretical work to methodology application to empirical results. Mm -hmm. Absolutely parallel to the same kind of chart we would do for the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. So so for phenomenologists, Edmund Husserl is like Einstein. Right. Edmund Husserl gives us the logic formulas. Right. Now, there's, there's a very important footnote here for Americans. Everything that, that Husserl was talking about was being thought of in parallel by Charles Peirce. Mm -hmm. Charles Peirce, the American pragmatist. Peirce has, has this experience as he's going through graduate school. He reads Kant and he says, his impression of Kant is, oh, this is a philosophic theory that can account for practical behavior. Mm -hmm. So Peirce sets out to, to find the way in which logic can be practical. Mm -hmm. He ends up reading Husserl. First, mm -hmm. reads Husserl's German phenomenology, and we, we get American semiotics. Okay. And so you, you get somebody like me who says, "My God, we've got we've got two independent thinkers mm -hmm. influenced by the same philosophers. They both read Kant. They both mm -hmm. read Husserl. But we have an American version and a European version. Right." So you'll find that most most Americans like me, who who write about European phenomenology, always show the parallel to Peirce. Right. And most of the American pragmatists who study Peirce, they say, "Oh, you know what? Look at Husserl here, because right, Peirce actually leaves footnotes. He said, you know, he he talks about the uh, uh, the great Husserl, the insightful Husserl. He gives little footnotes about where he got the idea." Right. <laughs> well, it's super interesting. Um, I I noticed that a lot of these things are going back to to the Greeks. I mean, quite often, as you've been walking us through the history oh, yeah. and stuff, it's always going back, always going back to the Greeks, always going back to Aristotle. That's pretty phenomenal. It's pretty incredible how far ahead they were or or just the ability that they had to be able to think and to come up with these things way back well you know one of the interesting things is that they or, or they particularly the pre-socratics their, their their whole encounter with thinking was their their embodiment of right. uh, what they were experiencing around them and so I mean, the, the, the early, if, if you read, there, there are some, several really good books on early Greek mathematics. And it's always the, 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 the same kind of, of narrative allegory because the, the descriptions are um, part, yeah, some, some Greek is out on the seashore and uh, is, is trying to figure out perspective and starts drawing diagrams in the sand with his finger. Well, what, what, what more kind of example do you need than that of embodiment? Perception right. turned into experience in the natural world, in the natural world, but with your body. Right. It's the finger drawing in the sand that did it. And so the, that, that became, this is famous in Peirce. Peirce per, called that diagrammatic logic. He said all, all mathematics, all logic goes back to the ability to draw a diagram. Mm -hmm. And only a human being draws diagrams. Right. <laughs> so, well, 
I, I, I should footnote one thing that's very important that I've left out of the whole story. I've, I've given you the Reader's Digest version and the, the big part that I left out, which now responds to the comment you just made, it, mm -hmm. it goes back to the Greeks, but that, that, that's, that's the source of the ideas. But the source of the methodology we, 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 we owe to the University of Paris, Thomas Aquinas and uh, Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great. Mm -hmm. It's at that, that period at the University of Paris where they invent the trivium, mm -hmm. the three subjects to be taught at the university, mm -hmm. which are logic, rhetoric, and grammar. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what is that? Oh, logic. Aristotle's thinking. Rhetoric. Aristotle's speaking. Mm -hmm. Grammar. Aristotle's writing. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's the, the scholastic philosophers then got into the, the methodology. What are the three subjects to be taught? And the, the methodology for, for teaching those three subjects uh, be, became, became the model for the universities. And up until about the mid-1950s, this was also the academic structure of most of the Catholic uh, graduate schools and universities in the United States. Mm -hmm because it, it, the, the requirement there, uh, if you look up some of my articles, I, I, I've laid this all out. Mm -hmm. There's, they, they, they have a, a pedagogy for the teaching of these things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and basically it was a, a, an incredibly rigorous process in which students were expected to learn to read and write in Greek, read and write in Latin, mm -hmm. and then translate from one to the other in writing and reading. Mm -hmm. So each, each one of those was a, a stage in development. And so th this structure um, Certainly, uh, uh, up, up until World War II, and to a lesser extent afterwards, but up until World War II, this was the absolute structure of the French high schools. Mm -hmm. Every high school graduate in France came out with the ability to read and write Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. And you will, you will find this present uh to a certain degree, it, it shows forth in Meloponte. It's the absolute cookie cutter in Foucault. Mm -hmm. Foucault is, he simply finds his own uh, substitute labels. Right. But when I, when I read Foucault, I, the first time I read Foucault, I laughed out loud because I said, he just copied his high school notes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, let me ask you this question. If you were designing a school, um, I'm, I'm in education. Uh, I serve as a head of school. If you were designing a school and a curriculum, what are the things that you would say? These are the, these are essentials uh, that need to be in a curriculum, maybe at different age levels, elementary, high school, um, middle school, even that that students absolutely be need to be able to understand and learn. What would you put in there? Well, I you know based on all of my 
my academic political beliefs, I, I, I I've come to the conclusion that the it's it's I, I I'm I'm basically a student of Kasira in that I I believe the 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 short answer is we we have to teach students to be conversant in symbolic forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we already believe that in American education, it's just the basics. You you you've, you've got to learn reading and writing, mm-hmm. which is tran- transcription uh, of symbolic forms. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to learn arithmetic. You've got to learn mathematics, which is another symbolic form. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's it's absolutely essential that we 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 get through the high school curriculum, where you get it at least to the level of algebra, because algebra is is about the the next level. It's the changeover of symbolic systems. Algebra is about converting words and letters into numbers mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you you learn individual symbolic systems. Algebra is the the system of systems. Mm-hmm. However, that that's on the quantitative side. You mm-hmm. must have the qualitative side, mm-hmm. which is literature. Mm-hmm. Literature is the imagination. It's the symbolic system used to create imaginary symbolic systems. Mm-hmm. So ab- ab- absolutely, reading literature. It. it is, is is essential because you have you have to just just like you would be taught algebra, you have to be taught that by a mentor. Mm-hmm. Literature has to be taught by a mentor who who can guide the discovery of those symbolic forms. Mm-hmm. So at least through algebra, and generally most good high schools then go go beyond. Uh, algebra one more level, which which mm-hmm. then is a, is a three level system of symbols. Now mm-hmm. that's that's a fundamental structure because all logic is a three level thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's we're, we're we're back to Aristotle, the thinking, speaking, writing. Right. But those are just logics of of levels of logic, and we all we all know this, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a fun it's a fundamental of public speaking that your speech should never have more than three points. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because people stop listening after that. Why? Well, because we know from mathematics, it's at number three where redundancy sets in. Mm-hmm. At number three, there's nothing new to learn. Right. Because because when, once you've achieved the symbol of a symbol, that that's the fundamental definition of analogy. Mm-hmm. There is no more learning. Mm-hmm. That is what analogy is. Mm-hmm. You can apply it, but you can't expand it. So that that's why we have stupid little rules like you. I remember in in, in grade school uh, vocabulary building. Repeat a word three times and it's yours. Mm-hmm. That's a truism. Right. It's a common sense truism. Because why? We we know this from cognitive science. Three times is what solidifies the synapsic connection. Right. We can see it on a graph uh-huh. when it happens. <laughs> so, so, and then. Also, at the at the pr- probably at, at some point, I, I you know I you you, you kind of have to take the community into account. But at least at high school, there, there's got to be mandatory foreign language, mm-hmm. and it it's it's got it's got to be practical in this in the sense that there there will always be fundamentals. Now the fundamentals change. 
So, for example, I'm almost 80. When I was in high school, the fundamentals were French, Spanish, and German. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, these days, my, my son, when he went to high school, had the option of Chinese, mm-hmm. those three and Chinese. So the various schools has, have various options. But I, I think we need, we need to take our cue from the international world. And so what, what would that be? That, that would be that you were already ahead of the game. English is the number one language of communication in the world. Mm-hmm. Virtually every country has, has and teaches English as a second language. Uh, the, the great proof of this is news coverage of the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Every other person in Ukraine speaks English mm-hmm. because they've studied it all their life in mm-hmm. school. Okay, so we, we have English. We, we, we should at least have German and French. Why? Because the history of Europe is recorded in those two languages. Right. Now, we, we, we can get by without French and German if we substitute another language. And this has been the, the hallmark of Catholic school education. You teach Latin instead. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I went to a, a relatively severe Catholic high school, so I was taught English, Latin, French, and German. Mm, well, those schools are kind of rare these days. They are. And they're not required. They're, mm-hmm. they're options. Mm-hmm. The, the, the other thing that I lament is that d- during my, my tenure, at Southern Illinois, on the graduate faculty, they reached a point where they eliminated the foreign language requirement. Oh my! See, and instead, you 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 could study statistics. Well, what did that mean? Well, that that was, you know, a cop out because it meant simply going over to the computer lab and and asking the attendant to give you the software for the the statistics right. you knew. And you you had some classwork where they told you what those statistics did, but you had no working knowledge of the statistics. Right. So it was, it was a, you know, a pointless tool. Mm-hmm. Whereas in my case, when I did my doctorate, the minimum was two languages. Right. So I, 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 I did French and Spanish because, number one, I already spoke Spanish, and French was so close that I didn't have to study very hard. <laughs> <laughs> We call it efficient. You had to get through the program, right? Well, when, 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 but my, my foreign language requirement was on the side. There was no credit for it. You had to take oh. it on your own time. Yeah. So yeah. When, when, when you're counting hours, that's hard. Yeah, we had. So at Duquesne, it was similar. It was either two language proficiencies um, or I was fortunate. I was able to do a language proficiency and take phenomenology. They had a course of phenomenology that you had to take uh, through your whole program there. So they considered that a different language. And you know, quite honestly, uh, it, it was close for sure. Well, it, 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 it's yeah, it'd be because it's well. This is one of the interesting things. Almost all phenomenology is useful, so it's 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 German or. Yep. The transliteration of German and the, the thing that is somewhat frightening is that well I I just wrote an article on uh, Schadenfreude um, as an example 
Mm -hmm. the, the frightening thing is that the German is a very close uh, semantic equivalent to Greek. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that people like Heidegger are interested in Greek. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for him to move from the Greek into German. Mm -hmm. if the, 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 the phonological structure of the two languages is very close. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other thing is that un unlike German, uh, American English or just English, British American English, has, has, has a, a syntactical structure that allows a, a, a semantic field that is very close to English. So anybody who speaks English well, finds phenomenology very easy because in English has the vocabulary, the lexicon mm -hmm. that, that, that allows a, a, a precise translation of um, Meloponte, Husserl, it's very easy to get into English what they're trying to say. Right. This uh, is a, a particular problem with the French because French vocabulary usually has, you take something like Meloponte's word, uh, sans, usually translated literally as sense, mm -hmm. but it really has four different meanings depending mm -hmm. on its context. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you don't if you're not really up on French literature, right, you can't really translate French, right. And 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 Foucault is a devil because he plays on those differences. Uh huh. And a, a lot of the translations of Foucault are nonsense. He does mm -hmm. he doesn't say in English what he says in French. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let me. I'm going to throw you a curveball here and ask you sure. this question. Uh, so I've read a little bit from on the origin of language um and there is i would say some debate where from your perspective does human language originate how do we get from how do we get to an actual human language symbolic form what do you have a thought on that Oh, yeah, yeah. That is one of the, the, the problems that's fascinated me my whole life is how, how do symbolic forms take on meaning? Um, it, it's usually referred referred to it by its, its problematic name, uh, which is the symbolic leap. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's best to start with an example, which is to say that we, we, we know that the, uh, uh, the language, particularly as a grammatical form, kind of emerged in what is now the, the Middle Eastern countries. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we know that one of the monumental symbolic leaps that took place was uh, uh, in, in farming and in and, and commercial grain sales. Mm -hmm. Farmers had to to account for the sale of their crops. And so they, they, they started off with things like a, a, a jar full of grain, a jar full of wheat. You'd sell a jar of wheat, right? Mm -hmm. And so they we, we, we're, and what, what I'm going to talk about in evolution is uh, from, from a physical thing, one, one jar of seeds to its symbolic representation. Mm -hmm. Now that move took about 
roughly 10,000 years. So mm-hmm. a symbolic leap is really, really slow, and nobody quite knows what the magic moment is when it happens. Mm-hmm. But we do know that it happens. Mm-hmm. So the, the first thing is you got a jar of seeds. You need a record of it. So you, you, you mark one on a parchment or a wax tablet. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that, that, that's good for 10 or 15 jars, but it gets kind of cumbersome when you're dealing with a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the first thing that happens is your, your wax tablet fills up more. The, the very first system was to tell, I'll, I'll use my, my little bottle cap here. Mm-hmm. But what they would do is take a piece of clay and put it in, make a ball. Mm-hmm. So what one, 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 one jar of wheat was one ball, and you put your little clay ball in another jar. Mm-hmm. Get a jar full of balls. Okay, that's the first symbolic move because that little clay ball stood for the jar. Mm-hmm. Now that, that only puts the problem off. Right. Now you got a jar full of clay marbles. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's better than a warehouse of wheat, but now you got a warehouse full of clay jars. So then somebody says, well, in, instead of a, a jar, I'm, I'm going to take my little clay marble, but this time I'm going to put a cross on it. I'm going to cut the clay while it's moist so that this jar, this little marble with a slice on it goes in a new jar. But this represents a jar, this one with a slice represents a jar of 100 marbles. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. The moment they put the slice on the ball, that was the symbol of a symbol. Mm-hmm. That's the giant leap forward. Mm-hmm. That was the idea of symbolic thinking. Mm-hmm. That That's where the alphabet came from. Okay. Because what happened was, oh, there's a cacophony of sound in nature. Well, we can't use all the, the sounds of nature. We'll just use a few. So on paper, we would put some marks for some of the sounds. But there's a side story to this now, which is part of your question. So where, where, where did they get the idea that there would be a limited number of sounds? That was 10,000 years before the 10,000 years. And that was the age of drums. But the first known medium of communication were drums mm-hmm. in Africa, distant drums. Mm-hmm. And so drums have a frequency range. And, and you you very quickly get down to a limited number of drum beats and sounds. Mm-hmm. So the idea of limited sound, a limited set of sounds, a phonology text, is already in the mind when you're doing marks. So this is this is just Aristotle again. Mm-hmm. What was speaking drum sounds becomes writing, grammar mm-hmm. marks on paper instead of sound. Mm-hmm. You don't need the drums anymore. You can simply bring the, the little marble with a slot on it. So this mm-hmm. is where symbol writing came from. Mm-hmm. And then alphabets. And al- alphabets are embodied because uh, alphabets originally were pictures that people saw. Mm-hmm. And so you get... There, 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 there are, one of the things about human memory is that there are leftovers. Mm-hmm. The one that I usually point out that is still with us in, in our contemporary alphabet, I, I, I usually ask my students, I say, okay, out of all of the, the the letters and sounds in the Roman alphabet, which one's the longest? Mm-hmm. 
the longest letter? What's the what's the longest letter in the written vocabulary? Mm -hmm. How could I? So they they start writing the alphabet, trying to figure out which one's longest. And I said no, you 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 can yeah you you can only measure longness by sound. Mm -hmm. You have to say it A B C. Oh, it takes a long time because W is the longest sound mm -hmm. because it's a double U. Mm -hmm. Oh. Where did W come from? Why why is one U and a single U and W? Right. Oh, we're back to differentiation. Mm -hmm. Self other same different. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a phonological trace from prehistory. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that people, human beings, let's say, were actually speaking prior to drums? Do you feel there? I mean, where does the what is the dip? How do we get to the point where? you get to actually understand the differentiation between different types of sound and, and actually garner meaning. I mean, I'm assuming that you would say there was communication taking place, meaningful communication before you get to the point where people are making balls or making that jump to, to symbols. Yeah. Is that, am I on the right track there or am I not making a good assumption? Oh, you know, you know, you're you're on the right track. There, there, there are kind of two channels. First of all, let me start with which I think is the um, the basic, which is verbal and nonverbal. Correct. See, because that's that's still with us too. That's a primitive notion. Mm -hmm. uh, nonverbal is always first. Correct. We always look at nonverbal as the the uh, the emotional attitude connotation context mm -hmm. frame mm -hmm. I look at somebody's face for attitude that's the frame and mm -hmm. then i listen to what they're saying right so non-verbal non sets the frame for how it's out how it's going to be decoded so the, the, the so if we, we're talking about primitive human beings there's a lot of behavior going on all non-verbal right and some of it gets accounted, gets accompanied by sounds. Somebody hits somebody, the person who gets hit makes a sound. Mm -hmm. So the gesture and the sound go together. So that's our, our first primitive symbolic linkage. Mm -hmm. Because the, that would be the, the, that's one of the first things that a, that a baby learns. Make a sound and, and be picked up. Mm -hmm. Sounds lead to gestures, gestures lead to sounds. Oh, the first differentiation. Mm -hmm. So we, we learned that right away. And my, you know, you, this is all speculation because we'll never know. Right. But, but we, we assume that the limitation starts coming because only some gestures merit a sound. So those must be the important ones mm -hmm. because they, they have a, a symbolic function because we can make the sound without the gesture. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we, we know that as talking because we can say something instead of doing it. Mm hmm. But that then leads to our social rule. Mm -hmm. Always do the comparison. Somebody says something, watch what they do. Right. Watch what they do to see if they say it. Right. To the see we, we, we just did the adult child, right? Right. The adult. Say it, do it. Command from the parent. Mm -hmm. Obedience from the child, do it, say it. Mm -hmm. How often did your parents say, I want to hear you say it? Right. <laughs> they want you to establish the symbolic rule. Correct. <laughs> so, yeah, I tell you, I'm assuming there was a limitation of 
practical sounds and gestures that led to a limitation of sounds, which then leads to a selection of a category of combination of sounds. Well, that, that's the second level symbol thing. Just like gestures can, can be combined, so can sounds. And so you, you then get, get into the, uh, the whole idea of morphine, phoneme, single sound, combined sounds, and so on. Um, and then, then, then you get, uh, again, it's, it's the third level logic. So at, at some point you have to choose where the sound differentiation is gonna go. And so mm -hmm. the, the, for, for example, the, the easy one is that uh, uh, total languages like Chinese or Dine, uh, the, the choice is made at the word level. So four right. tones, four sounds, uh, we, we, we leave it to the sentence level. Mm -hmm. And so it, it means that it, it creates a behavioral problem because a Chinese person will associate a single word with your nonverbal, mm -hmm. which, which to us seems like an instantaneous imperative uh, command judgment. Right. We, we would call it a harsh judgment. Right. Because we're expecting that judgment to be elongated in time. We're, we have to wait for the whole sentence. Right. In order to make the nonverbal verbal matchup. Mm -hmm. And so a, a Chinese will tell you that a Westerner can never make up their mind about anything. It takes so long to hear the judgment, the Chinese assume you have no judgment. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I I'm fascinated by like what is the different what is the difference between an animal brain and a human brain that we get language that we I mean obviously we understand that animals communicate but the fact that we I don't know I I did read in one of your articles where you made reference to general semantics and I believe it was I don't know if you talked about Korzybski or not but his idea of time binding, which is something that general semantics talks about, but really recognizing that there's this difference with a human being that they're able to, that we can get this stuff and, and bind time and write things on paper and communicate symbolically down through generations and centuries and everything like that. Right. And, and, and how I'm just, you know, I've been perplexed on how do we get, how do we get to that? How does that come about? Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that that's it's a, there's actually the general semantics explanation is 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 pretty good. The general semantics just talks about levels of abstraction, mm -hmm. and um, usually they the, the the general semantics writers get a little bit lost invariably because they're working only in English and, they, and they're, they're, they're taking English as the example. Right. Uh, in, in linguistics, there's a thing called grading. Mm -hmm. Good, better, best. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the problem is that all languages, because they are symbolic exchange systems, allow, allow for that good, better, best to be infinitely expandable and which means infinite abstraction. Uh, in, in theory, that's possible, but but not for human beings. Remember the 
the, the three rule, the three levels of logic. That, right. That's the cutoff point. So abstractions are never going to go beyond a symbol of a symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me go back to the good, better, best. So what happens when that, that's not good enough? Mm-hmm. Well, we just we'll, we'll, we'll combine we'll, we'll, we'll combine grades. So good, better, best. How about adding on more most? More good, more better, more, more best. Mm-hmm. Most good. <laughs> we, we, we can string comparative adjectives together endlessly in English. Correct. Which is one of the reasons that makes it so flexible. Yep. That, that doesn't get, so the, the abstraction argument doesn't get us very far. You have to look at it a different way. Abstraction is right in terms of language, but the language itself is a symbolic representation. So coming back to the question about animal versus human, the time binding is, is just a, a, a nice name for symbolization. Uh-huh. Bind time means to be able to make a symbol. Uh-huh. Space binding is the inability to make a, a symbol. Uh-huh. So sp- space binding, we know that that, that, that is... For a human being, that's where your body is. Correct. Space is divine. This is Meloponti. Meloponti says the human conception of space is position. Mm-hmm. Where your position is, is how space is defined. Right. Especially in terms of what you're able to physically know, see, sense, and not sense. Mm-hmm. Anything that you can't sense, you think, you imagine, whatever in the brain in consciousness whatever happens in consciousness that's time binding mm-hmm. or what i've called memory right so you're in a position something's happening you you, you need to think ahead my, my my usual example of this is getting out of the room with a door mm-hmm. okay m- m- most of us are in a room the door is closed we, I say, go out of the room. Well, I used to give this as a, as a problematic to students. I would say, we're in a classroom. Describe. Uh, I, I am from another country. Describe for me how to get out of this room. Describe mm-hmm. in English. What do you do? Well, you go to the door. No, I said, no, you're, you're sitting there. Tell me how, well, you've got to stand up. You've got to walk to the door. You open the door. And I said, you open the door. How do you open the door? Mm-hmm. And they said, with the handle. And I'd look over and I would say, but that door doesn't have a handle. It has a knob. Right. Whoops, we just had a vocabulary problem. Uh-huh. And I said, uh, which, 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 then I would stop them and I would say, okay, you, we, we've now discovered that you live in a memory universe. And, and not only do we live in a memory universe, but you have preferences. Right. Some of you are handle people and some of you are knob people. Do you know which one you are? That's sort of like, how do you roll the toilet paper? Right, right. You got to know who you are. I said, I, I, for example, know I'm a knob person. Uh huh. And I know why, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll find out. So I so they, I have people describe. One says, well, a knob you go up and you twist. I said, yeah, one gesture. Uh, handle person. Well, you go up and you have to grab the handle. And I say, from the top or bottom. I give them the toilet paper problem. Uh-huh. From the top or the bottom. Right-handed or left-handed? Because the handle has orientation. Right. 
knob is universal. So I said, oh, well, we're all knob people because it's quick. And I said, no, you, you're knob people, not because it's quick. It's, it's because you've learned to rebel against your parents. What? I said, you discovered that doorknobs are parents' control devices. Right. Doors with knobs cannot be opened by children. Mm -hmm. Their body is too small to do it. Mm -hmm. But a handle? Oh, even your cat can get out of the room with a handle. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I do what Meloponte would call the, the Marxist problem on them. It's really about state power and control. Who's right. in charge of this space? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting. Um, I don't want to take, we've been going for about an hour and 45 minutes and I haven't even asked you half the questions that I put down on there, but I don't want to uh, take too much of your time today. And I would hope that we can maybe do this again at some point. It's been really fascinating oh, and just sure. a, yeah. a joy to talk to you about uh, all of these things. I've learned a ton and um, I appreciate your time today. Oh, happy to do it. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, I've always thought that the great challenge for a phenomenologist is to take theoretical ideas and <clears throat> explain ordinary daily behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, and I guess that, you know, ultimately that's the point of, you know, the last question I asked, you know, how does this really all relate to, to the, to the, to the human being, you know, how do we learn about ourselves and how do we, understand better and how do we live better lives, you know, and learn to communicate better with people. All of these are issues and problems that we're dealing with. And I think the, uh, the things that you've talked about can give some insight into a lot of that. Well, it, it, it all comes down to the, the, the Kantian Persian notions of practicality. Mm -hmm. Whatever the academic theory is, it, it, it's got to have a, a practical ap application in everyday life. And um, the, the challenge that I used to give to my colleagues in faculty meetings always was when we had to make a decision, uh, I, I would ask them to uh, be as concise as they could about, about their position, how they would formulate a particular policy. And then, then I, I, I to, to, to their chagrin, I would always ask, okay, that's very clear to me. Um, can, can we have a couple of people write that up in, in language that could be printed into a brochure that, was, that could be given to a parent mm -hmm. who comes to ask what their student is studying? Mm -hmm. And the parent opens by saying, I've come to see what my kid is studying because I pay taxes. Right. At the state university. So that explanation has to be available. Right. Otherwise, it's not practical. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thanks for being with me today. Been a been a pleasure. Been a joy talking to you. Again, That's thanks fun. for taking the time. I'd like to do it again. I will. We'll do it again for sure. I'll be in contact. Okay, great. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Dr. Lanigan. Have a great day. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Richard Lanigan and learned a little something about communicology or semiotic phenomenology. Um, 
just a very insightful discussion, and um, I learned a ton, and I'm still trying to figure a lot of that stuff out, to be honest, but uh, appreciate Dr. Lanigan coming on. All of the show notes, again, for this program are at mindforlife.org forward slash 069. There you can find his, uh, Dr. Lanigan's full bio, as well as some links to his academia.edu page, and there you can find a lot of his articles, his papers, and even some of his encyclopedia entries. Uh, We do have a freebie available on our website, How to Have a Difficult Conversation. There's a link to it. You can download it. It's free. So if you're having difficulty sometimes engaging in difficult conversations or being able to be assertive, um, you can find the link at our website where you find the show notes for this podcast, mindforlife.org slash 06. Nine. Once again, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.